0: Hi there, this is Ian Rankin. You're listening to Writer Types.
1: Welcome to Writer Types. My name is Eric Beatner and I am your host. I have a whole lot of great authors for you today, so let's get right to it. Kicking us off is a duo. Tess Gerritsen and Gary Braver are both accomplished authors on their own who have decided to write a book together. Jess Gerritsen is of course the international best-selling author of the Razolian Isles series among others and Gary Braver is an acclaimed thriller writer and the two have been friends for years. Choose Me is the story of a college professor who has an affair with a student who then ends up dead and the search to find out the truth of what really happened. <music> Tess, Gary, thank you for joining me today. Uh, first off, look, I had no idea that co writing a book with Tess Gerritsen was an option. I missed the sign up sheet. So, uh, <laughs> next go round, I want to put my name down on the list.
2: Well, well, Gary will have to warn you that it can be an ordeal.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I've done my fair share of, uh, of co writing as well. And you two have been friends for years but only now decided to to co-write something together was taking this on more daunting in, in a professional sense or, or a personal sense. Like there's, there's a friendship at stake here as well.
2: I guess it's because we didn't think too much about it going in. We just, right. you know, it was one of these things where, Hey, this is a great idea. Let's just do it. You know, it's like, let's put on a show. So <laughs> right. So we didn't, we didn't go into it, like really thinking ahead about some of the complications that might arise um, and once by the time you're thinking about it, the, the process has already started. He's already writing his first chapter. I'm already writing the second chapter. And so um, we got this project going and we just wanted to finish it. We want to see how it came out.
3: And we're both pretty resilient and it, it worked well to have two heads on the same story. And so if one of us got stuck. What do you think we should do? Where should we go? And, and, and that just that just worked. Um, and it was all done by emails back and forth, back and forth until we actually had a book. It was enjoyable, very satisfying. I mean, it was work, but it was satisfying.
2: Yeah. It also helps that I think both Gary and I are able to take criticism. You know, if, right. if one of us yeah. didn't like what the other one was doing, okay, you, you know, you sit back and you think about it and go, yeah, okay, I, I see, I see your point of view. So if, if you're going to be stubborn about this or unable to accommodate, this is not going to work.
1: Right. <laughs> right. Well, I, okay. You've convinced me next time I go into a project, I'm not going to think about it beforehand. And then that's, I think this is the way forward. <laughs> well, the result of this partnership is Choose Me, which uh, has a whole lot going on. But to me, it what it really boiled down to kind of a he said, she said story in in, in the end. Can I assume that you guys uh, split the genders while you were writing? I mean, Gary, you took uh, Jack, Tessie, took Frankie. Is that how you split it?
2: Yeah. In fact, that was our that was our working title was He Said, She Said. So, oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you, you got that right. Um, yeah. And that was from the very beginning. That was the concept is that we wanted to know what the men and the, what, what a man and a woman would would see differently from the same situation. Um, yeah. so, so it was always agreed that Gary would write the male point of view and I would write whatever female points of view there were.
1: And uh, Gary, were you, you were ever having to, uh, t- to defend uh, Jack's position
3: in this? And, and uh, was, was there any point where you're like, okay, men aren't that bad? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, it, was, it was more like defending a few lines here and there. But I, 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 we both realized this is a murder mystery. There's a, a, a page-turner quality that overlapped a lot of them. But we wanted to make this not so much plot-driven, but character-driven. And we wanted to make them realistic. We didn't want to exonerate either one for, for wrongdoing or vilify them. So it was really like a portraits in gray instead of black and white. And and that, I think, was is the strength of the book in addition to the kind of Hopefully, the page turner quality to it.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think it's the kind of story that hinges, and something you, you did very well. It, it hinges on uh, on thinking you know what's going on, or, or thinking you understand these characters, but uh, realizing that how how often we can be wrong with people that we that we think we know. Uh, that's that. I mean, that just comes down to human nature, and that ends up being kind of crucial to all of our work, isn't it? If you're going to write any sure. sort of mystery or, or thriller, there's mm-hmm. somebody's always hiding something.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, and sometimes, yeah. uh, sometimes hiding it from
1: themselves too.
2: <laughs> it's part of being human, right?
1: Yeah, <laughs> Gary, this seems like a, a little bit of of a new lane for you—a bit of a step away from some of your thrillers, which often have elements of of science and and medicine in them. Right. Uh, but you also teach, mm-hmm. and, and this one takes place in the world of academia. Uh, it's, have you been collecting? stories about uh, fellow professors and, and life on college campuses for years that you finally get to use in a book now?
3: Yeah, some of that. I mean, the, uh, it, I, I've been teaching a long time. So I'm familiar with the with student life and uh, academic life. And um, it was also, you know, way back, professors could date students and often marry them. Um, and since Title IX happened, and it particularly uh, elevated by the whole Me Too movement, um, it became an actual taboo, not only a taboo, but it's a violation of uh, federal compliance that professors aren't supposed to date students over whom they have grades. I mean, for obvious yeah. reasons. Um, so I saw the change, uh, and the gender issue is with the last to actually really pop up. And like I said, the Me Too movement made it explicit that you know that yeah. is a form of abuse.
1: The the choice then test to bring Frankie in, who's from who's in law enforcement. This is someone who's, you know, her whole job is uncovering the truth and, and getting to the, to the meat of it. I mean, was it ever, did you guys start with those two characters or was it ever like the husband and the wife? I mean, bringing Frankie in who's, who has this professional capacity to uncover the truth kind of elevates the stakes, I guess.
2: Well, we always knew that there was going to be a female detective in the story. Uh, okay. We always knew that she was going to get down to the truth. The question is, what kind of a detective is she? So I, um, I brought, I, I don't think I started writing this character until we were two thirds of the way through the first draft. Uh, oh. But I always knew I wanted her to be seasoned. I knew I wanted her to be somebody um, with, with daughters of her own so that when she walks onto that crime scene and she sees a dead young woman, she is looking at this through the seasoned eyes of a mom and she hmm. sees the, the little things that don't make sense to her. Um, anyway, that's that's how she was created. Is that I was think I was calling back on my own experiences as a mom.
1: Well, it's interesting that it, that it maybe changed or, or that much during the process. Every time that I've co-written, I've gone in with a very very detailed outline, because when you are dealing with two different heads and two, you know, you're you're trading chapters, and sometimes you're writing a little bit in the dark with not not knowing what you're going to get from the other writer. I liked. Maybe I'm a control freak, but I like to know exactly where it's going. But it sounds like maybe you guys were uh, were a little looser with that.
2: Well, I think our, our, st- our uh, process might be a little different. I'm very loose when I write my first drafts. So, I mean, I don't know where things are going. I think Gary might be more of a planner than I am. So I probably, I don't know, Gary, did I get you out of your comfort zone with this?
3: no actually i I had a sense of where it was going to go even though I didn't outline it you know rigorously and and that was it' was pretty clear we in our communication back and forth we knew there was going to be a death and we knew there's going to be murder investigation and we we knew there was going to there's got to be somebody who is going to be the villainous person behind that and about two-thirds through even though we sensed where this is going we really didn't know who the villain was or who the most likely candidate was that might have committed murder. Yeah. Um, and, and we were back and forth on that, but I think we resolved it in, in a way that works well.
2: Yeah. And I should also point out that the structure that you see in, in this finished uh, book is not the way we wrote it. We wrote it in chronologic order, starting off with uh, Jack and and meeting Taryn and falling. you know, they have their affair and then Jack tries to pull out and then um, everything goes to pot and then Taryn ends up dead. And then Frankie shows up about halfway to two thirds of the way through the story. And our editor was the one who said she wanted to see Frankie early on in the story. So that is why she shows up. at the very first scene after Taryn is already dead. And we ended up with this back and forth, a before and after. We open up with sort of the present, and then we go back to see how we got to that point.
3: I have to give credit to Tess for that. She was the one who decided the before and after and to move Frankie up. I mean, the, the book is billed as a murder mystery. All the copy on the back where the dust jacket says this one died and there's a murder investigation. So try to build up to that when, you, you know, when you all, everyone knows who's reading the book. Then. <laughs> so ingeniously, and, and, and Tess put it all up front and did a great job at reconnecting the pieces.
2: Yeah, and, and it, was, you know, it was a complicated piece of machinery because we could have gotten all these little pieces together and I could have tried to put them together and realize that, you know, one was in kilometers and the other one was in miles and that is what <laughs> you do know, then. So a lot of it was retooling each little scene a little bit so you didn't give away too much mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. while even even though you're actually looking forward in time.
1: You know, of course, what the people really want to hear, though, is where were the disagreements? Where where were the arguments in the process? (laughs)
2: Well, some of them had to do with male-female issues. I, I, Gary, I'm just going to go spill your secrets now. Oh,
3: right.
2: <laughs> so, yes, it was a he said, she said. Which we want. I want to see what how men look at women and how women look at men. Well, some of the things that Gary wrote were a little bit too revealing. <laughs> For instance, when a man first meets a woman, women have we have this romanticized or let's say idealized view of how men view us. We think that they they admire us for our intelligence <laughs> oh I, that's not necessarily true <laughs>
3: that's down the list <laughs> they admire us for
2: our wit and our charm and everything else and um i, I think that i i was not as keyed into how sexualized men are when it comes to to meeting women for the first time and so when, when those chapters came in i thought Gary, is this, is this right? And then I would ask my husband and my husband said, yeah, that's right. So And that was one thing we had a little discussion about because I told Gary, you know, the majority of our readers for this book are probably going to be women and mm. they may not like that inside view of what men do. <laughs> so and let's pull back a little and let's, Let's kind of soften the edges so that this man is, a, I hate to say it, a little bit emasculated, but <laughs> we, we made him more acceptable as a, as a hero for the female readers.
1: Yeah, less of a predator. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> wow. There is definitely something about Jack. He, he, he follows a, a, a long line of, of characters and mysteries and thrillers who who are convinced that they can keep secrets not only from their wives, but from the police. What is it—the the hubris in the in, in either these characters, or is it men in general? Gary, are we, are we peeling back another layer of men? Do we have this <laughs> overconfidence that we can keep these
3: secrets from the people whose job it is to uncover secrets? Right. It probably is. I can compartmentalize my guilt, and as long as no one knows about it, you know, it's okay to go away with it. Um, this, was, this was, actually, this is going along with a, a spinoff with what Tess was saying, trying to make Jack. Sent it enough to his own actions and having the capacity for guilt, having the capacity mm. for regret. I wanted to make him the kind of guy who doesn't stand in the mirror and said, Taryn maybe do it, the, the, the attractive girl in his class, woman in his class, yeah. or my, my wife made me do it. He stands in front of the mirror and said, I made me do it. I am responsible for my actions. I went off the rails. Yeah. I violated my marital vows and I violated my position as a professor. And that I think is what gives him layers and and a kind of a, maybe more sympathy from the reader, particularly from the female readers. And we did have input from uh, Gracie Doyle and other people and our agent, you know, saying this might be a little bit too strong, or we can you know add this, add that, make it more attractive, make it more sympathetic for female readers.
1: So, do you think that there is? a secret to finding two writers who, who mesh together is, is it something about, uh, you know, the previous work, the the styles have to mesh or is, is it just a question of doing the work until you find the right blend?
2: Well, it helps that we both work in the same genre, which is suspense. Yeah. Um, and it also, I think it also helps that, that both of us are willing to give a little bit. Yeah. I think it's, it's personality more than anything else. I mean, once you, once you know, you're the same genre, once you know, you're both, You both have like this minimum competence as a writer. Really, the secret to working together is to be able to give and take,
3: and completely know your your characters too. I mean, it took us a while to get the. It could be a while to get to know Jack and where I was. I wanted him to be, and 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 tested the same thing in Taron and as well as Frankie.
1: Well, uh, this gives me something to bring uh, to the next time I I do a collaboration, and uh, I I think this this is an inspiring story that people can somehow come out the other side with uh, both friendship still intact and a great book to show for it. So well done, you two. It's inspiring.
2: It it could have been disastrous. We never, yeah, but luckily we're still talking.
4: Yeah.
1: The latest in the akashic city noir series is palm springs noir which i am thrilled to have a story in along with an incredible list of authors and joining me today to talk about it are contributing authors janet fitch and author and editor of the palm springs noir collection Barbara DeMarco Barrett, welcome to you both.
5: Hi, Eric. Hi, thank you for having us. Barbara, let's start
1: with you. Noir is not typically thought of uh, in terms of sun-bleached desert locales, uh, and yet it, it seems to fit so well. It's, it's not all about darkness and shadows, is it?
4: No, and the brighter the light is, the darker the shadows, Right.
1: Exactly. There you go. So what's uh, wh- what made you think uh, Palm Springs when you were thinking of uh, dark noir stories?
4: I've been um, renting houses out there for about the last seven years when I do writer's retreats. And um, every year before I bring a group of people out there, I go to the Palm Springs crime log and I look to see where the crime is happening because I want to make sure my people coming to the retreat will be safe. And when I started doing that, I didn't realize how much crime there was in Palm Springs. (laughs) Um, You know, I mean, like you look at the place and it's beautiful and and tourists love it and the snowbirds are there. And and um, and yet it has more crime than any other um, Coachella Valley city or neighborhood. And so I thought that was really interesting.
1: Wow. Well, Janet, you uh, have written a lot about Los Angeles uh, and and sort of the darker uh, sides of that. And I loved your story in this collection and it covers a lot of the traditional noir territories. You've, you've got a woman hell-bent on revenge. There, there's, there's lust in there. I mean, when you uh, heard oh, a, a noir story set in Palm Springs, it seemed like it was a pretty easy jump for you. You didn't even have to think twice about it, right?
5: Yeah, I think that, Crimes follows the money. <laughs> it's also a place, the roots don't go very deep into the sand. It's a place built on dreams, like Los Angeles, but even more so. People think they're going to change their lives, they're going to change their luck, but they're dragging the, the past as a way of catching up with you. Yeah, uh, And that's a, you know, that's a noir specialty. My story is certainly about about the past springing to life again. I spent a lot of time there as a kid. My grandparents had a place down there. It was very familiar.
1: (laughs) Well, also joining us now, uh, a late addition (laughs) to the game, Todd Goldberg is joining us, also (laughs) a a contributor to Palm Springs Noir. Welcome, Todd. Hi, guys. I'm so sorry. I'm a moron. We we just began, not not a problem. We, we always like any kind of surprise guest. Any any day that Todd just pops into the conversation is a good day. Well, <laughs> I have
6: to tell you guys the what what makes this so great is that I was doing something so profound that it stopped me from looking at my schedule, which was I was sitting here at my desk creating great works of noir, swept up in my mind's eye <laughs> until. Janet Fitch texted me.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, perfect. Uh, all right. So, Todd, we're talking about uh, Palm Springs and what makes this uh, a perfect location for noir, whether people think it might be or not. And you yourself, you, you write a lot about the Inland Empire, the desert areas, these, uh, you know, sandy and, and sun bleached places, which uh, obviously you think this is fertile soil for crime stories.
6: Yeah, you know, having grown up here in Palm Springs, well, let me backtrack. Actually, I grew up here from eighth grade on, but I had been coming here my entire life. My grandparents had had a home out here, both sides of my family, since I was just a a little kid, so I don't have any memory of life without the desert. But I always found it sort sort of gritty and weird, because, you know, if you spend a lot of time at a hotel or a lot of time at a resort... We are overhearing weird conversations and, you know, the, the cook and the janitor are scheming to steal someone's room key and rummage through their car or whatever. Like, these were always the things that I was aware of. Um, and then having lived here for so long now, what I know is true is that a resort town is made up of people who pretend for a living. They pretend that they're happy that you're here. They pretend that they want you to stay. They pretend that they are invested in your joy and your happiness. What they want is your money, and then they want you to leave. That's it. (laughs) And so I think that that opens up a, a lot of doors to criminality. You know, it's also the sort of place where people reinvent themselves and get away with it. I mean, my mom used to date... Every single person who ever said they were a spy, but now was working in a lounge in Palm Springs. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I just think that the area allows that sort of thing. Transience allows for, for misbehavior. Yeah, absolutely.
4: Eric, what about you? You have a story in the collection. What, what is Palm Springs to you?
1: Uh, well, you know, I, I, it was interesting when when you first uh, posed the the challenge to to write about Palm Springs. It's a place that I visited. Uh, you know, I haven't spent a, a ton of time there, but I've been there um, on many occasions, and but always with my family, with my wife and my two daughters. So it's always been, uh, you know, a bit of just a weekend escape. It's just been a, a fun time. But you do feel like it's a, a mirage almost because it's built in the middle of arid dryness and yet there's these pops of lush greenery that you know are just piped in from the Colorado River so it the whole place has a (laughs) bit of an artifice to it which I think is is a a perfect setting for noir and you know my story is about a guy who still lives in LA but has this property there hoping to retire and you know rents it out as an Airbnb in the weekends and stuff and I I know some people who have that have like an income property or yeah, it, that that kind of situation. There's a reason I would never be a landlord because I just am too paranoid about what could possibly go wrong when I'm not there. So I think that was the spark of what inspired my story. Is like, well, what's the worst that can happen if you're a hundred right. miles away? Oh, yeah, someone shows up dead in your pool.
6: <laughs> yeah, well, and you know that happens fairly frequently out here. You know, I, I have lots of friends who own and operate Airbnbs, and they think, oh, well, you know, we'll just make our money and everything will be fine. Well, the people who come to stay in Airbnbs are people who don't want to leave their credit card at a hotel, <laughs> <laughs> and that's a, a peculiar kind of person. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay, Barbara. It was interesting. We
1: we both ended up writing uh, about swimming pools, which I guess are they're ubiquitous out there. So,
4: <laughs> you know, every time I am in Palm Springs, because I one of the things I love is running a house with a swimming pool. I am always suspicious, you know, because there is a light and there is electricity. <laughs> and what could happen and so then i started researching and find and i found out that that people do indeed get electrocuted in swimming pools i mean bad things mm-hmm. happen in swimming pools and so yes. why not right
1: janet i want to know you know like we talked about you you've written a lot about la and is life that much different when you're only an hour and a half east or or you know 3 hours in rush hour
5: i think that Palm Springs is, uh, because it's so contained, it is a really good place to to write about because the high and the low are very close together there. Hmm. There's no industry. There's no reason for it to be there except for the t- tourism and, and real estate and getting away and all the things that that might entail. And yet people make it their home. Uh, you know, I have based in this uh, mobile park that my uh, grandparents had, there were people who, who you know, were long timers there. And they were kind of the interface, the membrane between the elements that Todd was talking about. The, you know, out and out crime, hmm. you know, uh, working the angles and the people who are worked. They're as savvy as coyotes the old lady in my in my uh story you know dated a mobster back in the day yeah you know, and they've worked in the bars and they've worked these you know people and they they've, they're right there on the edge it's a also a place where things go bluey in la you move out to the desert yeah. and so <laughs> it, my character uh, had been bankrupted and she moved out to her grandmother's trailer and is just Drinking and smoking pot and, and tending cactus—it <laughs> you know, offers a different set of choices than than a big place like L.A.
1: Oh, for sure. Well, Todd, your story uh, gives us a little bit of everything. We've we've got karaoke, we've got clowns, uh, and, and you've got low-level criminals, which seem to be your specialty. These these guys—you're you're not writing about. The the top guys going to Vegas. You, you you like the guys that are that are on the street corner level,
6: right? Yeah, I like I like the blue collar criminal. You know, they just punch in and punch out, do their time. I'll, I'll tell you when I was writing the story. I wanted to really convey this notion that a wonderful writer, Gabriel Hart, actually uh, talked about it in a review of something else that I had written, where he said that I write about desert shit. And if you live in the desert, like, you know what desert shit is. And in this case, desert shit is walking into a bar and seeing a clown and not actually being that disturbed by it. Because if you live in the desert, you know that there's several different clowns that sort of work in the bars and restaurants between Palm Springs and Indio. And no one's quite sure how they earn a living. (laughs) <laughs> or why they do the things that they do. But there's like, there's this guy Harpo. He used to have a sign coming into town. Because well, he's also a real estate agent, of course. Where you <laughs> oh, can buy real estate <laughs> from Harpo the clown. Um, he had <laughs> a big a sign. It was, like, it was just outside of Banning for years and years. There's just like all these strange bar people that dress up as clowns. <laughs> and you're just like, what is, why is this happening to me? Barbara, when you were compiling
1: a list of of authors to invite into this anthology, were you looking for people that you knew were tried and true noir writers? Or were you looking for some people to maybe stretch out a little bit and, and get somebody who doesn't traditionally write in noir to take a crack at a noir story?
4: I think most of the writers in the collection are not noir writers specifically. So I was looking for writers who... I think primarily can write dark, you know, as opposed to actually writing noir. Yeah, that was the thing, you know, writers whose fiction I like a lot and um, who could write dark. I mean, like with Janet, you know, I, I've read a lot, all of Janet's books. And um, White Oleander I saw is sort of a literary noir, yeah. literary fiction. And it has all these noir aspects. And so I just thought she'd be perfect. And Todd, of course, and you, you know.
1: <laughs> I've I've been accused of writing Noir before, that's for sure. <laughs>
6: <laughs> well, you know what you know what is cool though too, Barbara, is I, I think about like your selection of someone like Alex Espinoza, who is such a, a great writer of the region, you know. Mm-hmm. And who has such an insight into how people from this place do things and act. And so though even though he's not a crime writer. He knows who's got the guns, you know what I mean? And (laughs) I think that really shows up in his story. I think a writer like that is really what makes the collection.
5: Mm -hmm. You know, one of the the interesting things about noir, it moves easily between uh, social casts that people who are in them think that they are impervious to the other rooms. Mm. Uh, But in fact, noir shows us how permeable All of those rooms are, Mm -hmm. that it's, you know, the walls are so thin.
6: What makes Palm Springs such a perfect location for noir is the preponderance of hotels. I don't know about the rest of you, but I find hotels like the most noir thing on earth. (laughs) You walk into a hotel bar at two o'clock in the afternoon, there's a guy in a suit sitting there drinking, and you just think, who's that guy?
3: Mm -hmm. What's
6: he doing? For me, like, that's what makes the desert such a perfect place because people can hide out in these hotels and do weird things. And I don't think you get that just in suburbia.
1: Yeah. And I think anytime that you're traveling or in a hotel, it it gives people an opportunity to pretend to be someone they're not, you know, Mm -hmm. like the businessmen who are, in town for a conference and they're going to they're going to go wild that weekend because they're finally cut loose from uh, you know the the (laughs) wife and the kids or whatever and that's uh, chapter one of any noir story like he's he's going to go have his wild weekend and then you know uh, cut to the end of the story and he's uh, you know got blood on his hands and he's trying to figure out a way out you know right you know as someone who's written a a lot of noir it has been confounding to me for years how i've never ended up in one of these akashic (laughs) noir series. (laughs) series. <laughs> so Barbara, I want to thank you for inviting me in. Uh, you've put together a fantastic collection. The reviews yeah. are starting to roll in and they've been uniformly positive. Everyone's reacting really well. Well done, Barbara. This is a fantastic collection and, and a worthy addition to this ongoing series, which has become a real staple in, in the community. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is this is a, a bedrock of uh, finding new writers. If, if you want to search out new up and coming and established crime writers, a series are fantastic
6: places to just dig in and great for research too like if you want to write about boston or something reading those are fun
1: i think if if you're going to take a trip to any city in america grab (laughs) one of these before you go you'll either be warned away from certain areas or you'll know exactly where to go where all the exciting nightlife is right Next up, we check in with our resident reviewers, Dan and Kate Malman. All right, Dan and Kate, hello and welcome
0: back. It's uh, heating up there in Minnesota, is it not? This is not weather that I was trained to handle. Um, I'm a, I am have no Nordic blood. This has been insane.
7: Yeah, when I moved to Minnesota, this is not what I signed up for.
0: But
1: that's why you lock yourself in with the air conditioning and a
0: good book, right? That's very true. Yes, yes, because yes. if you go outside, your your good book will burst into flame. Uh, all right, well, you you guys have been reading uh, two of the
1: hottest new releases. See what I did there? Nice. Uh, and uh, Dan, we're going to start with you. Uh, recent Writer Type's guest, S.A. Cosby, and his
0: latest, Razorblade Tears. Razorblade Tears. This is a book. This book... <laughs> oh, thanks um, for
1: clarifying.
0: <laughs> no, it is. It's, there's some books that that stay with you. Mm. And you turn them over in your mind, and they stay with you. That's the great thing about... Uh, reading crime and mystery fiction, people can tell stories um, and use uh, crime and, and mystery and and violence and, and whatnot to tell whatever tale they want to. Mm-hmm. So what Cosby's done with Razorblade Tears is he's telling a story about two men who are living with, with pain and regret. You have Ike Randolph, who uh, is a black man and he's the father of Isaiah, and Buddy Lee, who's a white man and the father of Derek, Isaiah and Derek were, were married, a gay couple, and they are murdered as victims of a hate crime right off the bat. We're thrust into a story that, that is, is tearing you up just by circumstance. Yeah. Um, And what Cosby does is he puts the reader into um, Ike and buddy, and he's skilled in such a way that he's telling the tale and the reader is impacted, but it's not, um, woe is me. It's two men carrying this burden.
1: Yeah. yeah. You know? um,
0: in the hands of a of a lesser writer, I feel like it could just be um, misery for misery's sake. There is a point to this, and you feel what they feel.
1: Well, that's uh, it's interesting because I, I think you zeroed in on the thing that I really liked about this book too. I, this was one of my top reads of the year for sure. And I think the thing I liked about it, it's it's a revenge tale. Yes. And those are very easily just sort of you know, revenge porn or violence for violence sake. And, and you, you got like the death wish thing and it's, you know, oh, they, they murdered my wife. Therefore uh, my eyes go red and I'm just going to kill everything right, right, that right. I see. But these two guys, it's so rooted in an emotion and it's not just them out to get back at the death of, of their two sons, but they're also atoning for their own behavior uh, and, I, that's a part I really liked.
0: Yes. And we are so on the same page that in my notes, razor blade tears is asking these hard questions um, about race, acceptance, and family. As the fathers are digging deeper into the crime, their own feelings and their own emotions uh, are bubbling to the surface. And, and they hold up that hard mirror to themselves, you know, because obviously they they've cut themselves off from their kids. Mm-hmm. Um, they wanted nothing to do with their lives and they, they meet up after the fact. So they missed all the happiness and, the, and all the joy. But as as they are, go off and do what the cops can't do, are they going for redemption for themselves or revenge for what the world did to their sons?
1: Yeah. Uh, all right, Kay, well, you uh, went a, a little bit on the other side of the spectrum uh, with a, a book, the, the kind of book, that if it's got recipes in the back, you you, you know what you're going to get here. Uh, sure. Arsenic and Adobo by Amia Manansala. So how, what did you think of that?
7: I really enjoyed it. Um, this is a book that I had talked about earlier in the year as a book that I was looking forward to for 2021, and it lived up to my my hype. It's a new cozy, like you said. You know, it's got recipes at the at the back, so you know what you're getting into. But it's really clever. Uh, her protagonist, Leela moves home from Chicago to help her her aunt run her aunt's restaurant. Leela leaves you know the big city of Chicago. You know, not under great circumstances, her boyfriend kind of did her wrong. And so she kind of goes home to kind of lick her wounds and her aunt ropes her into helping out with the restaurant. And there's a very vocal restaurant critic in town that wrote a very disparaging uh, review of Aunt Rosie's restaurant. And then he ends up unfortunately dying in her restaurant. Mm -hmm. So local law enforcement think that clearly... Tita Rosie or someone has to have something to do with it. So Leela immediately does her best to try to set the record straight, clear her family's name and get the restaurant reopened. So what Mia has done is done a really great job of creating this whole cast of side characters that are fantastic. She's got these uh, godmothers that she calls the calendar crew <laughs> because their name or the calendar club, because their names are, April, May, and June. Yeah. There's her aunt and her grandmother who help run the restaurant. And they're just clearly guiding voices in, in Leela's life. And her best friend and her best friend's hot brother, who's a lawyer. So most debut novels, I you'll see kind of like as the kitchen sink novel, where they just put mm-hmm. everything that they can, because who knows if they're going to get another book. Yeah. And I think here, Mia has done a really good job showing some restraint in mm-hmm. not putting all of the ideas that she has in the book. She lays a lot of really good threads that could become a something in another book.
1: Okay, well, big question. Uh, did you make any of the recipes?
7: I haven't, and for no reason other than I just haven't. Um, <laughs> I have no good excuse for not having tried the uh, Ube Crinkles, which is like her Leela's signature cookie.
1: Yeah, that's the one I wanted to try too.
7: Right, right. And <laughs> Those sounded good. Who, yeah, and as someone who likes to bake, I have absolutely no reason to do that. So I'm going to have to do some shame baking later. If it's a if it's a cookie, I'm trying it.
1: Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Unless it has raisins in it.
7: Yeah, raisins are terrible.
1: Well, they don't belong yeah, in cookies. Really. That's for sure.
7: I heard raisins referred to as grape turds the other day, and I thought <laughs> that was the best description. Oatmeal raisin cookies are just a waste of sugar, flour, and oatmeal. Well, oatmeal yeah.
0: raisin cookies are the, are the biggest pretender because you get all yes. psyched up because it looks like a chocolate chip mm-hmm. cookie. Exactly. And that what you get is not, is a lie.
1: Yes. Yeah. This is why I have trust issues. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a decoy
0: cookie. Right. Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah.
1: yeah. So that's, if someone tried to slip one of those to me, That now you're talking about a murder and you're going to have to solve that. <laughs> There's your chapter one of a cozy. <laughs> but every reader would be like, oh, it's totally justified murder. You, you get just off scot-free. <laughs> yeah.
7: No no jury in the country would find you That's guilty. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Bang's gavel. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Finally, this episode I have Willis C. Richards, debut author of The Comfort of Monsters. This is a chilling, slow burn about a girl who goes missing in Milwaukee in 1991, the summer of Jeffrey Dahmer. So her case is buried under the avalanche of coverage about that much more famous crime. Now, years later, her sister is still trying to find out answers. It's a powerful meditation on truth and memory, and this debut is getting a whole lot of praise. Willa, thank you for joining me. I mean, when I first heard about your book, The Comfort of Monsters, uh, I I wanted to talk to you because I finished a book about a year ago about uh, a girl whose sister goes missing and then the aftermath of that. Uh, I have not been able to sell this book or get any traction on it, so (laughs) I wanted to talk to you and see what I did wrong, what, what you did right in The Comfort of Monsters.
8: Um, that's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, I did see on one of the, one of the reviews, it might've been Publishers Weekly was sort of talking about, you know, the glut of, of dead, dead girls and and true crime vehicles. Right. And, and, and I, you know, I think that is, is true. There's a lot of that material out there. Um, And, you know, I think when I went to it, I, I did want to sort of try to subvert some of those tropes, um, work very specifically with the city of Milwaukee, which I don't you know, see set in um, novels or I mean, television film at all. So
2: yeah.
8: um, the specificity of the city was important to me. Um, and I think that might've been a new setting for a lot of readers.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, so in the book, uh, Peg is forced to dig deep into her past to seek out some answers that weren't there when her sister disappeared. Uh, you set the book both in 2019 and back in 1991, in what was a very fraught time for Milwaukee, where where you're from. I mean, that was uh, that was that was a strange year, huh?
8: <laughs> it was a bad year, a very bad year. Um, and it was, you know, I think the other thing I tried to to show in the book and, and setting it in the two two time periods is like. It is contiguous with a lot of bad years in Milwaukee, right? Now, it, it's also fraught being from Milwaukee and choosing that as a time period to to put on display and to put on the page just because I think Milwaukee also gets a pretty bad rap generally from East and West Coast or a, or a no rap. But um, yeah, <laughs> if...
1: <laughs> ignored probably more often than not.
8: Exactly. If people know about Milwaukee, the first thing they usually think sometimes, you know, they think like the beer and, and Dahmer, right. Um, so I, I um, was, was sensitive to, to that aspect in writing the book and in, in drafting. Um, I really wanted to try to contextualize the whole thing so that it wasn't like, this is the only thing that Happened in Milwaukee, right? Um, right
1: in that year. I mean, you, you're dealing with the fallout of, uh, of like you say, the Jeffrey Dahmer case, and I, I, it does make such an interesting background for this girl who gets disappeared and essentially completely overlooked under the shadow of this much larger crime that went, you know, national, I mean, international.
8: International, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, and it was just a good way to to sort of look at news coverage and the way those things can really magnify certain crimes and then completely disappear other crimes, right, from the public public perception, yeah.
1: The peg you describe, she ends up uh, anchored to the city, as you state in one passage, (laughs) Uh, and she sort of held in stasis, waiting for her sister to return. It it seemed to me like there was a lot of of the feeling of helplessness uh, in in the face of evil or tragedy, both in how the city was kind of powerless to do anything about Dahmer that that happened right under their nose, and then how Peg is helpless to figure out what happened to her sister. Is this sort of well, am I zeroing in on a theme here of, of, that you were trying to explore?
8: Yeah, I mean, I guess I don't know that I would call it helplessness. I mean, I think another way of, of putting that, in, especially as you position the, the, the Dahmer crimes layered in there, would be like not listening, mm. right? Because I think there were people that that were sounding some alarms. Um, you know, I talk about one woman in the book, Linda Cleveland, who's very who's famous for that now, and her her and her daughters did sound the alarm on Dahmer. They were ignored. And and then, you know, as far as Peg goes, I think she does have a sense of helplessness, but like she's doing everything she can to try to continue telling this story and to continue going back to the police and um, sort of curating her own memory. So she feels very, um, you know, secure in those. So I definitely see what you're saying in terms of the helplessness, but I think on an institutional level, there's also a, a feeling of like, why is no one listening to me? Um, I, I have something that I need to. To, yeah. to tell these people, right?
1: Yeah. Well, you uh, have sisters yourself. Uh, what did they think when you were uh, writing about sisters? Was was, <laughs> was everyone, anyone worried? Like, oh no, she, that's secretly me on the page.
8: <laughs> oh, I mean, I think anyone that is has a family or friends that's a writer is they're always worried about that, right? Um, and and rightfully so. Yeah. But you know, I have I have three sisters, so I think it's it's safe to say that like you know the character traits and the relationships were very shared among among my sisters um but of course my youngest sister you know we're very close in age um and you know we we grew up very you know best friends so so there's a lot of our relationship very much on the page but it's also like I was looking at a lot of sister relationships even to like my my mom and her sister um, and, and using those to, to sort of inform, uh, Peg and Dee's relationship.
1: Now, my, uh, my two girls are uh, about 18 months apart and, okay. uh, they're, they're, they're te- teenage, 15 and 13 now.
8: Ooh, fun it, for you.
1: <laughs> well, they're at that age though, where it feels like they're never going to get along because, you know, they, it, yeah. I, and I yeah. think the worst, the worst thing that can possibly happen is two girls having to share a bathroom yeah this this seems to be where the battle lines are drawn is it can, yeah. can you fr- from the perspective of, of adulthood does it get better? are they gonna come back together and be best friends when they're older?
8: I think so. I mean it depends on every relationship, but like I definitely teenagers were the worst i like I warred with everyone in my family when yeah. I was a teenager um and even even my little sister we were so close growing up, and I think around like right around that thirteen age it was like, okay, well, I'm older, so uh-huh. um I know a lot more than you, and she's like, "What do you mean? Like you? <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't." So I think there's that that dynamic, but that that like the older you get, it it evens out, right? Because you realize like when you're in your twenties and like, you know, I, I was like, "No, I actually don't know like any more than you." Do. So we're <laughs> we're we're on pretty level playing field here. Okay. Um, good. Yeah, I think that evens out.
1: So so it's gonna get better. Right. That that makes me yeah, feel. Little... Yeah, that's the okay. takeaway. That's the takeaway for okay, you. Okay, good.
8: It gets better. <laughs>
1: Well, if you, in this book, you, you talk a lot about what it means to to remember things, and, and you know what makes a good or reliable witness to things, if anyone really is. I mean, mm. we all have our own perceptions, even of shared events, right?
8: Yeah, I mean that was that was a huge part of the book that I I found very exciting to explore, um, and starting with like one of the scenes. That was in the original short story I wrote. So I, it started as a short story, oh, okay. And um, one of the scenes that I think is about three fourths of the way through the book was was you know sort of also three fourths of the way through the short story, and um, that was like a scene that the idea of of memory and of what you know what it means to either either to block something out and then say like. And then completely form your own idea of what happened um, hmm. or to have very crisp sort of like, I don't know if you have any of those memories where you feel like it's so clear and crisp. A lot yeah. of times those are sometimes like either like very, very happy times or even like more traumatic, right? Where it's like things start to slow down.
2: Yeah. And
8: so I really wanted to explore, like try to try to do that on the page, which I think was very difficult.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
8: um, but it was a lot of fun to try to, to play with that and then Not necessarily lean into like, oh, the unreliable narrator, but just like someone who is so obsessed with, with their memories that you, you start to think like, okay, something isn't quite right here, you know? Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. So your debut novel, which is congratulations on that. And you've, you've ended up with a suspense novel, but the DNA of uh, your, your PhD background, your time at the Iowa Writer Workshop, I, it, it shows through here. I mean, this it's a literary thriller, if, if that even is such a thing. But uh, I mean, you, you yourself are a, a longtime suspense and thriller fan, right?
8: Yeah, I mean I it's definitely stuff I grew up reading. Um I was very drawn to, you know, like at, at like 10 or 11 reading like Mary Higgins Clark and just like tearing through those paperbacks, you know, mm-hmm. and I had like stacks of them next to my bed. Those were the kind of books that I was like, "Oh, this is like so fun. This is just yeah. fun." Um so I think that when I sat down to write my first book, I had that very much in the back of my mind of like I want to give the reader that experience. But I think because I did have so much of this like so much of the Iowa training, it was uh-huh. <laughs> it was interesting to, to balance that. It was very interesting because I love plot, I love plot heavy books. But you know, I think a lot of the the learning that I did in workshops was very character based mm-hmm. and sort of like that, you know, make sure you let the plot come from the characters. Don't like shoehorn the plot into the character. So um it was it was hard to balance at first. And I think it just I just got the balance over like a lot, a lot of drafts.
1: Well, uh, I, I was born right there in Iowa City. Uh oh. sp- spent a lot of time there, and uh, I mean the writing department there is it's very prestigious. It's 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 second only maybe to the Hawkeyes, of course. But
8: uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, oh man, I yeah, I loved my time in Iowa City. I you know a lot of people come from the east or west coast when they're when they're um you know coming to the program, so they they're a little bit of culture shock. You know, I'm from the Midwest, so I was like. Oh, like a few more cornfields, but that's, you know,
1: (laughs) yeah, (laughs) no, I, I was sitting, yeah, when, when I I talk about my, you know, kids or, or my wife, you know, trying to explain to them, like, of all the places in Iowa it's fairly cosmopolitan because of the university i mean like i i bought totally. some of my first punk rock records in iowa city you know it was like <laughs> right there's, right there's there's a, there's a culture there that's yeah, right. constantly being renewed because of all the students you know
8: yeah and also like so many people stick around like that's another thing i think it's funny people come to the program and then they spend like their two or three years there like complaining about like the restaurants and stuff and then they just are like adjuncting for the next four years, because it's so cheap to live there, right? There's other writers around, like it does, it does have that comfort of like a very small city, like people tend to enjoy it, I think more than they let on.
1: (laughs) Well, uh, a debut is always an exciting and yet slightly nerve wracking uh, time. Are you uh, getting into talking about your book getting out there? You finding this fun?
8: Yeah, it's been, you know, it's such a strange process, right? Because I think the excitement of generating a book is so, um, lonely. Like you're, you, you, don't have a lot of people to, to really, um, talk to about it. And, and so you're kind of just dealing with that on your own. And then you go through all of these drafts and then you kind of like hate it. Cause you, <laughs> you know, you read it so many times. And then at the same, like at the point where you're starting to like the peak of your, you know, disdain for it, other people are like, this is so cool. <laughs> 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 and You're like, Oh no.
1: Well, congratulations uh, on the debut, uh, Will, and uh, I certainly hope that you're able to get out and do some in-person events. I mean, this this know, is this yeah. is fun to be able to talk to writers all over the country and all over the world uh, doing this kind of thing, but you know, I I'm sure the whole time you were in Iowa, you were l- passed by Prairie Lights every time and think someday I'm going to be signing books there, right?
8: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I really hope so too. I think, you know, LA's doing pretty well. I, you know, I think they've got some some stuff open, but I have an event at Romans and it's still online. All my events are still online.
1: All right. Well, uh, it's now that you're here in LA, I'm, I'm sure I will, uh, I will run into you out and about when we do start getting out there. So, uh, Absolutely. it's, 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 it's a small writing community here, even though, uh, it's, it's probably bigger than Iowa city at least.
8: Yeah, I would, I would say, I would say. <laughs>
1: Well, that's it for this one. I have more coming soon since I've had such an overload of great authors to talk to. So look for extra episodes in the coming weeks. As always, you can find us on Twitter at Writer Types. We love it when you leave a review or rating wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, thanks for
5: listening.